Okay, well, good morning, everyone. I don't know how many of you are news buffs, check in on, you know, your internet connection or your TV, but, well, at least toward the end of the week, it was no longer wall-to-wall Donald Trump. Uh, It was Prince. And some of you know uh, Prince, Robert, um, you might have been a fan of Prince's. He was... uh, well, a rock star. He passed away in Minnesota this past week. He actually won seven Grammy Awards. He won uh, four Golden Globes. He won an Academy Award. He was a singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, an actor, and a producer. And uh, some called him a musical genius, and many compared him to Michael Jackson. He... Um, was no stranger to controversy. Some of his lyrics were so sexually explicit that it prompted a whole movement to get uh, record companies to put warning labels on the albums. But uh, it was at first reported that he'd had the flu, and then allegations came out that it was a drug overdose, and there's an active investigation going on. So we don't know what that'll come up with. But whatever happens, even if it is shown that he was out of control, addicted to drugs, we as followers of Christ won't be in the position to judge him because that's not our place, right? Our time and energy would be be better served to look inward and to maybe deal with our own issues, our own habits, our own addictions because we all have them. In fact, uh, it could be any of a number of things that we don't even normally think of as addictions. Sure, there's... There's drugs, whether illicit or prescription drugs, which really trap people. There's alcohol, which becomes a self-medicating thing, or, or food. Food can be a real addiction to where that's where we find our comfort. Maybe, um, gosh, it could be gossip is, is our drug of choice. Or anger, outbursts of anger. And that just releases something and we get into that or... Could be sexual uh, addiction, pornography, which is so prevalent, especially with the internet now. Could be spending, you know, get my fix shopping, doing that kind of thing, whether online or, or in the store. Some addictions are mo- more socially acceptable than others. Some addictions are less destructive than others. But all addictions and those habits keep us from becoming the person that Christ desires that we become and that we really want to become. So how do we know if we're addicted to something? It's usually not when we have it, but when it's taken away from us. Okay, I'll give you an illustration here. Um, Next Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to have baskets at the doors and we're going to ask everybody to drop their cell phone in there when you come in. Just kidding, you know. I don't want anybody to get all scared here. But you know what happens is when something is taken away from you that you really are kind of addicted to, you get fearful or you get angry. You may feel guilty or even bored, and you have to have that. And so that's just a sign that there may may be a habit there, maybe an addiction uh, that's gotten a hold of us. Well, this week, we're going to enter into 
in the Believe series, um, our 24th, which has to do with self-control. This is our journey in which we're reading together, discussing it in Ohana groups, and talking uh, even in the messages how to gain self-control. And our key idea is I have the power through Christ to control myself. You do. So do I. And we need to know that. And I'm hoping that this week we'll move forward in tapping into that power. And that's what I want to talk about for a few minutes here this morning. But before we do that, I want us to focus a bit on the struggle. There's an outline in your bulletin, and it begins with this idea. Desiring to do right, we find ourselves in a battle we just cannot win. That's this battle to have self-control and all these other virtues that we want to have characterize our lives as we become more like Jesus. The Apostle Paul, the amazing Apostle Paul, who planted all the churches and wrote half the New Testament, just a great hero of the faith, he struggled with self-control. And uh, he even wrote about it in Romans 7. This is what he says. For what I am doing, I do not understand. And I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Anybody identify with that? But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Something in me that even though I agree with the law, something in me that doesn't want to follow it. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Jesus expressed it this way. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So what is it that causes us to just continue on in these patterns that we know don't honor the Lord? Well, I want to suggest three things that Scripture sets forth. It says that uh, we lose self-control when we're tripped up by the world. So what's the world? The world is the system in which we live. It's the uh, values that are present in this fallen world. And uh, one of those values, well, it's expressed by the term secular, secularism, which literally means nowism. It's the here and now. The belief, the value that here and now is all there is. So you better grab it while you get the chance. Because then you die and it's all over. So secularism, nowism says, boy, you only go through here once, grab it right now. Whereas scripture says, no, no. You live for Christ here and for eternity where there's great reward. So there's a real contrast there. But we get sucked into worldliness by all the commercials and all the attitudes and the beliefs, the values we're surrounded with. We're also tripped up by the flesh. The flesh isn't our body. It's that selfish part within us that wants to be God. 
that wants to have it our way and wants to be in control. And so that plays right into the world's commercials and ads and values, and uh, they go together. But there's one more entity, and that's the enemy of our souls, the devil himself. And there's a lot of people don't believe in the devil, but actually the scriptures set forth the devil as a supernatural evil being with minions of demons under him who serve his purposes to tempt us and then to accuse us. And you say, well, I'm not sure if I believe in the devil. If you don't, you'd be in the minority in history. And not only that, but, uh, and Lana, you folks that know, it's true in the world, right? You go anywhere in the world and they believe in the dark side and the demonic forces in the developing nations. They live with that. We've become a little too sophisticated to believe in it. But if we believe the Bible, you can't even understand the Gospels without believing in the devil and demons because Jesus encountered them continually and Scripture warns us against them. And so you put them all three together and we have a problem. The devil tempts us, the world's values are there, uh, our flesh wants to desire those things, and we succumb, and then the devil accuses us and say, you call yourself a Christian? And then we really feel condemned. So it's just an endless cycle of frustration. That's what we get caught in. That's what Paul was talking about here. Tim Keller says, the churches tend to focus on one of these three. And if we do that, we miss the target. For instance, uh, more liberal churches, they're going to think maybe about the worldliness, and so they'll think, we've got to counter that with our own philosophy. So we uh, intellectualize it and come up with these uh, ideas and philosophies to counter worldliness. But that ignores the other two. More fundamentalist churches are going to focus on the flesh. And they're going to say, well, here's the rules. Just obey. Stop that. Don't do that. Have you ever tried that? doesn't work, right? No, I mean, uh, that's not going to do it. And then some churches, more fringe Pentecostal churches, it's all about the devil. The devil's behind everything, and so uh, every bush and everything that happens, we've got to cast that demon out, and so it's just a continual casting out of demons. And there's truth in all of those, but you focus on anyone, you miss the target, you bring them together and realize, wow, we've got a formidable challenge here, and uh, we need some power that is going to be able to help us to be delivered. Now, the reason that we get attracted to these things around us and addicted to them is because every one of us desires worth and meaning in our lives and security. And these things in the moment seem to provide that. And so we go for that and uh, pretty soon realize that's really not going to provide that. God's the one who can provide meaning to our lives and worth. says you're infinitely worth all enough for Christ to die for you, and security. It comes from God. We think it's in these things, but by the time we realize it's not, we're hooked. And so what we need to realize, God's the lover of our souls, and he wants us to respond to him and make him our goal and devotion. 
And out of that comes all the meaning and worth and significance. And then we can put everything else in its proper place and respond accordingly. So what's, what's a definition of self-control? I came across a good one this week. It says, self-control is the steady capacity to resist temptation and to accomplish what you have chosen or decided to do and be, even though you don't feel like it. Even though you don't feel like it. So self-control is doing what we want to do and resisting what we don't want to do. And if we want to become like Jesus, self-control is necessary. So how do we get it? Well, first I'm going to talk about how we don't get it. Uh, a, a way that will not achieve it, but we sometimes think it will. Self-control eludes and frustrates us when we strive to obey the rules with willpower. Determination. Grit. I'll try again. I'll try harder this time. The Apostle Paul expressed that going on in Romans chapter 7 when he said, For I joyfully concur or agree with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. It's that battle going on. Yes, I agree with the law, but it's not happening, even as I try harder. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? This thing's killing me. This thing that is in me, this sin and using my flesh against me. When Paul said that he agreed with the law, he would have been referring to the law of Moses, which as a rabbi he knew was not just the Ten Commandments. There were actually 613 commandments. And in addition to that, down through the centuries, before the first century, Jews had added volumes to those 613 laws. They called them the Mishnah. So there was a fence around the law so they would never get to the law. And it was like they thought that the path to holiness was keeping all these rules, keeping all these laws. That's why Jesus was always at odds with the Pharisees who wanted to hold him to those rules, those extraneous rules. And uh, that was frustrating because Paul found you can't do it. It's impossible. By willpower, you're never going to be able to satisfy it. And, and in fact, we have tended to replicate that in the church. Every church has its own rules beyond Scripture. They may be written or unwritten, but if you're really a good Christian, this is what you got to do and this is what you shouldn't do. And, and it's like we're measured by that. And sometimes when we fail and fall short, we just fake it put on a happy face and come to church and nobody will know the difference and they call us hypocrites and we wonder why or sometimes maybe even worse yet we make it in those areas and then we just look down on others that don't and criticize and judge them and they call us judgmental sometimes those labels are deserved because it's through religion and willpower that we think we can gain God's acceptance and the thing is here's the problem with those it's external it's it's these things that we do that you know our heart may not really be in it that was the problem with the pharisees he said you know you do all these things but your hearts are far from god so we can do all those rules and keep them but 
it's really just external, and that's the problem with that, no internal change. In fact, sometimes more rules incite us to rebel. That's what Paul said. Paul said, and I'm going to paraphrase here, he said, you know, I was sailing along pretty good, and then I read in Scripture that you shouldn't covet, and then I wanted everything in sight. That's just the, the old nature there, right? And you think, well, that's Paul, but that's not me. But wait a minute. Have you ever been driving on H1, and you notice all of a sudden everybody's slowing down and uh, going the speed limit, and you look in your mirror, and there's a police car, you know, coming up there. So you go with the flow, right? And then pretty soon, the police car takes the next exit, and, of course, everybody just keeps on at the same speed, right? No. no. Everybody steps on it because we really didn't want to obey. The, we agree with the law in, in principle, but there's something that says, you know, if that guy's not around, I'm going for it. And that's kind of that old nature, and that's the problem with religion and willpower and external compliance. Frustrating and uh, won't achieve it. However, self-control gradually and inevitably grows as we respond to the Spirit's power. What does that mean? Well, of course, that's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, we call it, because God's holy. Who, when we believe in Jesus, comes to dwell within us. Sometimes we don't allow the Spirit to direct and empower us, but that's what needs to happen and can deliver us and break the chains that we sang about this morning. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church up in Asia Minor that he'd planted in Galatia, which is the letter to the Galatians in your New Testament, he wrote to clarify some things to a church that was confused. You see, there were Jews and Gentiles in that church, and the Jews, I mean, they'd grown up with the law, and they thought, understandably, that that was the pathway to holiness. And yet Gentiles in the church, they would say, well, wait a minute. When the Apostle Paul was here, he said that we were saved by grace through faith. Can't be both. And so what is it, Paul? So he wrote to them, and in that letter, and I would commend the entire Galatian letter to you. You can read it in 20 minutes. It's amazing. It's liberating. And he basically says, oh, no, you're saved by grace. And if you are saved by grace through faith, do you think you're now going to be perfected by living according to the law? No, you'll grow in holiness the same way you were saved, through faith. And then he says this in chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. He now understands what he's been wrestling with in Romans 7. That it's the Spirit of God who's saying, this is the way to live, follow me, and yet the flesh doesn't want to. There's the problem. And then he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, if you follow the Spirit, you're not under the law. Really? Not under the law? Wait a minute, what happened to the law? Well, we know that Jesus is the only one who satisfied the demands of the law. He alone was sinless. He alone uh, met every requirement of the law. And Paul tells us in the Colossian letter that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, the law was too. With all its rules and regulations that we couldn't keep, it, 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 it just condemned us. 
it showed us that we were guilty, but it couldn't save us. No one could ever keep it except Jesus. And he satisfied the demands of the law. And so the law was nailed to the cross. And now we, who believe in Jesus, are no longer under the law. We're under the covenant of grace in this new covenant. And so do we want to keep God's commands? Absolutely. We want to do so because we love him, not because uh, we think that's the way to gain forgiveness. That already took place when Christ was nailed to the cross. God's grace, his undeserved kindness, his unmerited favor nailed Jesus to the cross and extended forgiveness to us even though we didn't deserve it. That's grace. And I have to say personally, grace intercepted me. That's why I'm in the ministry today. I was raised in a church that was all about what we did and, and trying to measure up and trying to please God. And, and I rebelled against that. Uh, not defending that, but I did that. I just went a different direction until someone opened the scriptures and said, this is what God says. He's already done for you. His grace is extended to you through Christ. And I said, I want to serve that kind of a God, not no longer to try to gain his approval, but to let him know I love him. Dwight L. Moody, he was probably the Billy Graham in America of the 19th century. And uh, he, he really discovered the concept of grace. By the way, so did the heroes of the faith that we admire today. Martin Luther, he labored for years, didn't believe God really loved him and, and trying to please God. And then one day he realized, no, it was grace. It was God's grace that had saved him. Uh, John Wesley, same thing. The founder of the what came to be the Methodist Church, intercepted by God's grace. Well, Dwight Moody wanted to investigate grace, so he set a day, a day aside just to study in Scripture about grace. And then that day flowed into a second and into a third. And the story goes that at the end of the third day, he was so enraptured by the concept of God's grace, he ran out in the street he grabbed the first person he came to and said, do you know grace? Do you know anything about grace? And the guy said, grace who? <laughs> and I think that's where a lot of us are at. Grace who? We've been living under the law, trying with our flesh to get rid of these habits and please God. But no, it doesn't come that way. It comes by being led by the Spirit as we're following the Lord. There's a psychologist and theologian by the name of Gerald May. He wrote a book called Addiction and Grace. And he says in that book that all of us were created with a deep desire to have a relationship with God. And that's God's hope and desire. And, and yet we settle for all these other addictions. And we're basically replacing God. That's called idolatry with these things. And then he says this. To be alive is to be addicted, and to be alive and addicted is to stand in need of grace. God wants us to be addicted to him, to be dependent upon him, to find our worth, meaning, and significance in him. Paul says this in Galatians, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, we know about them, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery or witchcraft, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, 
disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I may be saying you never get to heaven, but I think primarily he's saying you can't experience God's kingdom if you're living in the flesh in those kinds of ways. And he says, in contrast, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There doesn't need to be. We don't gain these virtues by living according to the law. They are produced by the Spirit of God in our lives, and it starts within. It's an internal change in our hearts that emanates in changed desires and a changed action as a result. Have you ever, have you ever watched fruit grow? He talks about this as the fruit of the Spirit. Have you ever watched fruit grow? I mean, I grew up in Nebraska. And if you've ever driven I-80 through Nebraska, you see lots of corn, okay, as far as you can see. And they say that you can, you can actually hear corn grow on a quiet day. I was a little skeptical of that. You know, I always thought it was the breeze rustling the leaves of the corn stalks. But, but I really think there's something to that. On a still, hot day, you can just hear something in that field. Maybe it is corn growing. But I wouldn't try this with your papaya tree out in your backyard. Watch those papayas grow. You know, <laughs> it might get a little boring, right? But the thing is, if you look today, and then you come back a week later, they've grown, right? It's amazing. But that wasn't external. That was from within. And the growth is invisible. And that's what happens with the fruit of the Spirit as we follow the Lord. People say, wow, you're different. What happened? There's a change in you. I noticed that. And sometimes we haven't even seen it or noticed it. Or sometimes, and this happened in my life, wow, I mean, I used to talk this way, and all of a sudden, that stuff's gone. And where did... You know, what was that all about? It wasn't that I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I began to follow the Lord. Now, I still have my own issues, okay? But I'm telling you, in that area, that was it. And that's how the Spirit of God works as we follow the Lord. And he makes changes from within because he changes our heart, he changes our desires, and that results in that inter internal change in external uh, difference in action. The answer to taming uh, our issues and our habits and our addictions is not more rules submitting ourselves to the Lord but I want you to hear what the Apostle Peter says in just a moment because this is really key he said this that God has given us his divine nature made us partakers of his divine nature and his divine power which he said is everything we need for life and godliness. God's divine power within us is all we need for life and godliness as we lay hold of his precious and magnificent promises. But then he goes on to say this. Now this, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, 
And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. And you say, but wait a minute, Pastor Ron. I thought you said that this is a passive thing. That it wasn't our effort that's going to gain us these virtues. Hold on. That's true. And you say, well, there, it says applying all diligence. Yes, that's right. But he didn't say go after self-control. He's saying seek the Lord. And add by, to your faith knowledge. Where does that come from? The Word of God. And so when we lay out a path of discipleship, Keala Oyesu, we do that intentionally. And we say, loving God means getting into worship in the Word. Now, it took a little effort to get here this morning. There was a little bit of diligence. I mean, you could have come at 8 o'clock, but, uh, you, you know, the more spiritual folks come at 11. And uh, so, uh, but, but it takes some effort and some diligence, right, to get into the Word and get more knowledge, right? And then how about connecting with one another? I mean, if you're going to get into an Ohana group, that takes some effort, you got to go. You could watch TV that night, but you're going to go to your Ohana group and connect with other people and start loving and praying for one another and, and, and caring about one another. That takes some diligence. You're saying, well, I'm not going after self-control. I'm going after the Lord and in, in to be used of him. And in serving others, same thing. You're just responding. You could do lots of other things, but it takes some effort, takes some diligence, takes faith to step into an area of servants, service. But as that happens, what's happening? The virtues, the fruit of the Spirit are being produced in our lives. We're not going after those things with willpower. We're following the Spirit of God in these areas and praying for lost people and, and reaching out to them. And as that happens, these virtues, these fruit are produced in our lives. And, Paul, and Peter says this, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities, these virtues, is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. What we've forgotten is grace. What brought us here and what will bring us to fruition and produce this fruit in our lives and that comes in these ways and by the way we need each other for this process that's the connecting with one another if we're going to grow in fruitfulness and seeing the fruit of the spirit come in our lives it's going to be as we're connected with one another and I really mean this if you don't believe that talk to folks in Weight Watchers they know they need each other to encourage one another talk to people in AA Alcoholics Anonymous or, or NA, they realize the importance of community and, and, and holding one another accountable and encouraging one another. Well, those principles came right from the church. And so we, we can't grow in isolation. We grow when we're connected to the vine and then to one another in the body of Christ. Paul concludes this, set, this section in verse 24 when he says this. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Remember, we talked about how Christ was crucified and then the law was nailed to the cross. Paul said, I want you to reckon that your passions and desires, those old nature desires, were also nailed there. Because Paul said, 
I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the flesh in a desire to please and serve him. Okay? For him who delivered himself up for me. So when we are following the Lord, we're not tolerating sin. We're denying it. In fact, indulge me for a moment. One of your key verses this week comes from uh, Titus chapter 2 where it says that the grace of God has appeared instructing us to deny all unrighteousness and ungodliness and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in this present age as we look for his coming. So the grace of God isn't a concept. When he says the grace of God has appeared wasn't some kind of an abstract note. Who's the grace of God? Jesus. So not only did we get an instruction manual when we came to Christ, we got a personal trainer. And that's the Holy Spirit who instructs us, turn from this, seek the Lord, and then this will happen in your life. We want to coddle that habit. Hold on to it and just keep flirting with that thing and get only so close to the edge, right? But somebody has rightfully said, can never satisfy sin. Sin can't be satisfied. It must be crucified. And it has been. If we reckon that thing dead and nailed to the cross and say, Jesus, I'm going to live for you. Let me close with, with a story. It comes from the Lord of the Rings, which is fictitious, but it's got a lot of good biblical principles in it, writ written by J.R. Tolkien. It's a trilogy, and, and the movies are good too, but I, I really enjoyed the book. And uh, in the book, there is a hobbit named Pippin. And Pippin is in trouble. The, uh, the king of darkness, the witch king, and his commanding forces are descending upon him. He's going to be killed, and all his city with him. And all hope is lost as that demon king is bearing down on him, ready to devour him, when all of a sudden, Pippin hears in the distance the horns. And those are the horns of the cavalry, the, the riders of Rohan who are coming to save him in the city. And they make it. And they destroy that demon king and uh, his forces. And, it, and Tolkien writes, from that day on, Pippin could no longer hear the sound of distant horns without breaking down in tears. And his point is, from that day on, every time Pippin would hear horns in the distance, he'd be reminded of his own deliverance and the salvation that was brought that day. And the question for us is, what are our distant horns that remind us of our salvation? If you're saved, if you've found Christ... They're there. It might be a scripture verse that, wow, that's what brought it to life, that God's grace was there for you. might be a person. might be a place that you go to. Uh, but there's something in our lives that reminds us of our deliverance and brings us to the hill of Calvary on which we were delivered. Well, communion is one of those distant horns. That's why Jesus gave it to us to bring, be brought back to that place of deliverance. And uh, when we've passed those elements of commun communion in a few moments, 
we'll be reminded of our own deliverance and uh, gratitude should well up in our hearts when we just express our gratefulness to God for his deliverance through Christ and commit ourselves to following him. Following him, allowing him to change our hearts, break the chains so that we can live in a different way. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for grace that reaches us wherever we are, wherever we've been, that forgives us, and that transforms us as we follow you. So, Lord, we want to see the fruit and trust you patiently to develop it as together we walk in your ways, led by the Spirit. And we pray this in your name. Amen.